my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. What the death of the U.S. dollar looks like. Now, you've seen headlines for years now talking about the death of the dollar. The U.S. dollar is ending, they say. But maybe it's not just happening just yet. And there's three reasons why. So I'm going to be joined with a special guest today, someone who's been back on the channel multiple times to break down what the, the death of the dollar really looks like. What three components have to be there in order for a new one to pop up? What we should be watching for? Uh, and then we'll get into some other stuff. We're going to talk about um, which countries might have the best alternative. And then we're going to talk about the Fed, the U.S. Fed, what they're doing with rates, what's happening with the U.S. dollar here at home, what you should be expecting in the stock markets, the economy, and yes, even with your real estate, if you're hoping to buy a home or potentially refinance with lower rates. We have it all here with Nick Batia, a returning guest to the show. It's a great conversation. Let's go ahead and just jump right into it. All right, Nick, <laughs> thanks for joining me today. Uh, back again to the, to the show, I think, I don't know, two, two or three times. Always love talking to you. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me back, Mark. So, um, you know, I love the work that you do, uh, the book that you've written, Layered Money. I reference it often. Uh, everyone should check out that book, Layered Money. Um, and also the Bitcoin layer, the newsletter you've been writing. I was talking about before we started recording how uh, impressed I am with how well of a job you've been doing. So uh, everybody listening, check out his uh, newsletter, The Bitcoin Layer. Um, and, and what we're going to be talking about today is something that he wrote about on this and something that I've been working about in some other research that I've been doing as well. And so uh, let's see where this matches up. And for everybody listening, we're going to be talking about the death of the dollar. 
Now, uh, we've been talking about the death of the dollar for a long time, and and as Nick points out, it has been dying for a long time. But the article that he put out um, says that the reports of the dollar's death have been greatly exaggerated. So uh, you've heard me talking about the death of the dollar. You've heard thousands of other people talk about the death of the dollar. Um, And he's here to say that it's been greatly exaggerated Um, because the U.S. dollar is deeply entrenched in global financial plumbing and the notion that China, Russia, BRICS, whatever could dethrone it is far from reality. That's what you said, Nick. So uh, frame that up for us. (laughs) Yeah, it's really... There are two sides of this coin, Mark. You know, one side is the fact that we have 30 trillion in debt, we're well above 100% debt to GDP, and historically for nations that has been a danger zone, right? That's something that we talked about um, together when we were in person last year. It it's it's on front of mind, I think for Americans that understand the implications of that. That's one side of the coin. The other is that the dollar is entrenched and it's in a position that is so interwoven into how we do business that unwinding the current dynamic of a dollar-centric financial system isn't a, it's not a viable project yet. Even though we have different nations dreaming it up, let's say, the actual process of unwinding the dollar at the center, it's nowhere to be seen. And so those are the two sides right there. It doesn't mean that people and nations aren't preparing for it. They definitely are and they're making plans. But those plans being put into action and those action items actually getting traction in global payments and international finance that is either in its infancy infancy or very early stages so that's how i see it and i don't see anything imminent meaning in the next decade or two that would unwind the dollar system and so how you know making predictions any long-term prediction um, really has to be taken with a lot of considerations asterisks but that's generally the way that i see it that over the next couple decades, it's just not going to unwind fully. Okay. Um, and so I, I often like to say it's a process, not an event. We know that when the dollar took over the reserve status of the British pound, it was about a 30-year process. Um, so kind of to your point, a couple decades, 30-year process. And of course, uh, in, in one of the charts you use, the, the pound is still, I think, a top three currency used today. So even though it lost its status 100 years ago, it's still the top three currency. But let's, let's, let's back up just a little bit and let's take this down to a first principles level so that everybody can start to build their own ideas off of this, this conversation that we're having here. So uh, you wrote the book, Layered Money, which takes everybody through the history of money and helps them build that, right? And so if we look at the dollar, um, this, the dollar it, as money, right? So we're talking about the dollar losing its status as money, uh, money being a medium of exchange. So we're using it to exchange for goods and services and also a store of value um, where we'd store our wealth in it. And also maybe as a payment network where we can facilitate payments across the world. So if we're talking about the dollar and this global homogeneity, this payment system is, 
Would those be three of the buckets that you're that we're kind of talking about there? Yeah, generally speaking, yes. And when we think about when I think about the replacement of the dollar for any of those three, there's no clear challenger and there's no clear number two for any of the use cases that you're describing. I think right. Bitcoin has claims to try to fight its way over the long term on maybe all of those notes that you hit there. Um, but as of as of where it stands today, neither the Ch Chinese renminbi, the euro, or Bitcoin are really um, a legitimate challenger to the dollar in those aspects. Right. So when I think about if we if we kind of break those three down, and I think it's just helpful as we kind of go through some of this. But if we kind of break those down, we look at like a medium of exchange. Um, so nobody wants money. Right. What we want is the goods and services that money buys us. So it's that medium of exchange piece. I don't want a Chuck E. Cheese token. As a matter of fact, I may not play games there because I don't want to get the tokens first, but I might get the tokens in order to play the game. Um, and I th and then, then there's a store value piece, which I think most people at this point realize they probably shouldn't store wealth in fiat currencies. So I think that most people have already kind of gotten rid, you know, past that. And then there's the payment network. And I think that's a big piece because of the, um, the way the banking system is set up, the financial plumbing, as you call it. So those are kind of the three pieces that we're talking about. Um, now, you said, uh, quote, unless we experience the complete abandonment of all existing financial plumbing, it's here to stay. And so really, in that, in that quote, you're talking about the dollar being this payment network of the world, right? It's so entrenched that there's just really no way to just kind of up, up in that. The, the network effects maybe are too strong. It comes down to, you know, the credit component of the dollar what i'm describing there in that sentence okay. it's not it's it's more the capital market side of it mark when we're talking about plumbing it's not payments per se payments use the dollar rails right if we think about global payment solutions that are helping people transfer dollars across the world what I'm talking more about is how credit gets introduced into the market, right? How is money created? It's created in the dollar denomination because of something that we call maturity transformation. This is the idea that you have people's savings that are allocated to very safe investments, right? We, we think of them as money market funds or fixed short-term fixed income, treasury funds, those types of instruments, okay? Those types of instruments have a very short maturity, right? This is money that people know they're going to get back tomorrow. Then you have in the capital market a desire to borrow money for 5, 10, and 30 years at a time by corporations and by governments. Because those governments, they don't wanna to have to roll their debt every day. They want to borrow money for a long time and invest in a project and let's say a toll road. That will take 30 years to pay itself back. So they wanna borrow money for a long time. So how do you match the short-term money with the long-term desire to borrow and spend and invest? and build 
That process is called maturity transformation. It's done largely through the repo market where short-term money finances long-term bonds at the, invest at the asset manager level or the bank level. And that maturity transformation happens in dollars. And that maturity transformation is how the world builds things and invests in long-term projects. That's the plumbing that we're talking about. That's done in dollars because both sides have agreed that that's the denomination that is coming with the savings and the short-term demand for safe assets. And because we have that base, we have companies and countries willing to borrow in dollars. It doesn't matter if it's the United States. Every country company that's a major player participates in the dollar capital market so that they can participate in the maturity transformation that the dollar savings glut has to offer. So that's what I'm describing about plumbing, and that's why it's so deeply entrenched. There's nothing that unwinds that on a short time horizon. And there's nothing, there's no actual challenger in that regard from for the maturity transformation. And so that's why I don't see a competitor coming for the dollar uh, anytime soon. So you're talking about um, the liquidity, or not just not not just the payments uh, markets, but the credit markets. And so um, the majority of loans being done are den denominated in dollars, and uh, you need the differences in maturities and links and the liquidity available in those markets for uh, sovereigns and whatever to to be able to borrow. And there's just no replacement for that. That's correct. And if you yeah. think about who is investing in these long-term projects not the core here to understand the maturity part is that not all players in the dollar market want to lock their money up for 30 years they finance that activity through the repo market and it's just a matter of borrowing money and then investing that money at a rate that's higher than the amount that the rate sorry than the uh, rate at which you're borrowing so that's you know called a spread or a positive carry where you borrow and then you invest and you try to target a difference that's positive so that you're making a net interest on that activity that is done in dollars because both sides are there all across the maturity spectrum from the short to the long end hmm. Now, isn't China, um, through their Belt and the Road Initiative and now the 2.0 version of that, um, doing lots of uh, yuan-denominated debts to all those nations? They are, and those are extensions of credit, right? And the extension of credit is uh, an effort for China to get countries to pay them back in renminbi over the medium term. That does introduce that currency into the capital markets but there's no chinese currency repo market and there's no chinese currency convertibility across borders either so it is the extension of credit sliver of the pie but that doesn't make it into a robust capital market that's equipped to handle something like maturity transformation. Hmm. 
understanding the Chinese uh, currency is difficult because there's two of them, right? Uh, you have the yuan and the, and the renminbi, and, and understanding how they use those two is is uh, is is interesting. I want to get more into that, but before we do, I want to kind of just kind of build this case up a little bit more first. Um, and so you had said, you know, uh, uprooting the critical financial infrastructure would prove lengthy, costly, disruptive, impractical, um, and there's no clear reason for another national currency to displace the U.S. dollar. Um, Per the IMF's website, they say for the most of the last century, the permanent role of the U.S. dollar in global economy has been supported by the size and strength of the U.S. economy, its stability and openness to trade and capital flows, and strong private property rights and the rule of law. So that's the IMF's website. So you said there's been there, there's no reason, there's no clear reason for another national currency. And per the IMF, the U.S. has had this role because of those reasons: stability and openness to trade, capital flows, strong private property rights, and rule of law. But what happens when those are gone? So if we no longer have openness to trade, no longer have strong property rights, and no longer have rule of law, uh, for example, um, unilaterally moving against oligarchs uh, without any due process. Um, does that cause now, now per the IMS reasons that starts to lose the reasons. And then to your point, there's no clear reason for another currency. Does that start to then push the need for needing to do that or wanting to do that? It's a relative game, Mark. And so when we think about the dollar as the outlet, it, it, you have to compare the property rights to other places. Now I know we're struggling to let's just say Americans are struggling to fight for their rights on a state and a federal level that's actually a tale that's as old as the American nation itself where the people are uh, struggling to protect the republic aspect of our form of government right because in the way that regulations can come down and the way that regulatory bodies have evolved we just have that constant battle so that is that exists but then let's just bring in the euro for a second just look at the euro do we feel that our property rights will be stronger in europe relative to the united states that's the key conversation and let's not even try to compare the property rights in china and the united states and really quickly on the Chinese currency, the renminbi is the name that they call the currency. And my understanding is that yuan or yuan is a, a more generic way to describe currency. And so they're interchangeable and they can be used interchangeably. But China, it's their, the, the unit of account is renminbi and Yuan is a word to describe the currency, so you can use both of them at the same time or interchangeably. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at this, and, and again, you know, I, uh, I think uh, neither of us, uh, any experienced investor uh, trader would never be trying to time things, right? We're just looking for directionality here. Um, and so, you know, looking at the directionality of this, we can see a couple trends. Um, one, obviously, we can see the dollars percentage of GDP and FX reserves has been dwindling, but I mean, it's still well over 50%, over, over 60% or approximately there. Um, but what I'm looking at is like uh, money being used as a weapon. In 2018, there was an article written um, in MSNBC by Left, and he said that the U.S. was now waging war on one-tenth of the world. Um, I was looking it up earlier. The U.S. is sanctioning over one quarter of the world's populations. Um, and so, you know, when you kick a country out of being able to use a currency, then um, what are they going to do? Go die? <laughs> they just have to find something else. And so, like, when you have a quarter of the world's people that now can't be in the system, then those people, like, if I kick a quarter of the people out of my party, they may go start their own party somewhere. But what I've been seeing, and here's a couple of data points I pulled, is I see Russia has now made yuan uh, the reserve. 17% of their FX uh, is now in yuan. Um, the UAE is now issuing bonds in their own currency, so outside of the dollar. Um, Egypt is issuing 500 million in yuan bonds, so outside of the dollar. Israel's diversifying their FX into yuan. Um, and then we have China and India buying oil in yuan. But what it looks like to me, though, is all of those people are diversifying out of the dollar. But does it really matter? Because it seems like what's really at risk here is all FX reserves and not just dollar reserves. So it looks like they're almost diversifying for um, deflation in or inflation in the currency, as opposed to what we saw happen in Russia was their entire FX reserves were just seized. So are they, are, are they, are they trying, I mean, does it look like they're, they're not really protecting themselves against what the, what the U.S. could crack down on, like what happened with Russia? They're really kind of diversifying currency risk. Yes, that is for sure. You know, the yuan have, will have a higher carry than um, the dollar will, right, for example. And so we see that 
people that are dollar investors will swap dollars for a foreign currency to buy bonds in that currency and hope that the FX movement doesn't go against them enough um, to account for that extra carry that they got going for the higher return bond. because And it has a higher return because, sorry, a higher expected return because it has a higher risk. And so w when it comes to uh, countries diversifying their reserves and holding one, we see that that can happen at the margin and it probably will, especially for Chinese trading partners. There's no denying that. That will definitely happen. But if you see countries diversify away from dollar or the mix of their reserves and start to buy debt from, let's say, the UAE or other countries that are issuing their own currency bonds, a lot of that trade is done through the FX swap market itself, where the capital that exists to buy that bond is actually in dollars to begin with. And it's just swapped into the currency to buy that bond. But when it returns back into its maturity, it's an extension of dollar credit actually that allowed that bond to be issued in a foreign currency. And it's some bank that transforms the unit of dollars to that other fiat currency. So yes, the yuan is gaining in terms of the way people are, or countries are holding their reserves, especially trading partners with China, but it doesn't, it's, it's not enough to make, it's not enough to start the transformation of the broader capital markets going in that direction. It's, it's an alternative investment, right? Yeah. And so if we, again, so if we break these apart, like medium of exchange and store of value, um, and kind of using this Chuck E. Cheese uh, example again, um, I don't want Chuck E. Cheese tokens unless I'm going to play those video games. Um, you know, Russia was selling their energy in rubles, but nobody has rubles. And what is Russia going to, now they get rubles, what are they going to do with them? Nobody accepts rubles. They're no good, right? Money must be saleable, right? It must be um, accepted. But to your point, if they're doing it in Chinese yuan and China, China is the largest exporter in the world, well, that's a lot of Chuck E. Cheese tokens that could be spent at China, right? That could, that, that could be used. But that'd be the medium of exchange. Doesn't mean that's where their reserves would go, I, I guess. It, would you break it apart like that? So, but then could they put their reserves into gold, like what they're trying to do right now? And so we'll, we'll use the yuan as a currency uh, because, hey, we have, you know, trade imbalances there. Um, and then we'll store our wealth over here in some in liquid uh, currencies that we might use, but also maybe gold or something like that. It And that is how it's playing out. Okay. And that's not the recipe for a world reserve currency to develop. It's the recipe for the internationalization of a currency. And that's the process that China that China is going through right now. They're trying to internationalize their currency. They're nowhere close to making it a capital market or let's say a deep capital market and the reserve and the method for uh, global reserves to be held. They're just not close, but they are internationalizing their currency and they're doing that with trade and you know things like Belt and Road. Yeah, they did. I also did see that they're making the yuan uh, convertible to gold. 
Did you see that? So then that looks like maybe it has a little bit of a store of value play in it where you could hold their currency and it's supposedly kind of convertible to gold, as good as gold almost. I didn't actually see the uh, the news story about Chinese uh, currency being yeah. convertible into gold, but it, it, it it's not a it's not a peg, right? There's no uh, peg to gold or anything like that. Yeah, it's not pegged to gold. It's just convertible to gold at, at whatever that floating rate is going to be. Um, they just announced uh, the last two months they added over 30 metric tons per month, um, which they didn't add that. So then what they did is they announced they have it. And then the question is, why did they just announce that, right? If they've already had it, these are just speculation. But um, if we keep going down this, um, you had said that uh, uh, regardless of whether you'd like to deal in dollars, if you're going to grow as a nation, you need to be utilizing the currency that is embedded throughout all of global finance. Um, and then you said that as the world continues to decentralize, which uh, I view as what's happening, you say that the dollar actually becomes more entrenched as that happens because of the adversarial dynamic um, where no nation will accept another small, relatively illiquid currency because it narrows the options available. Um, and so the money must be saleable. They don't want to be stuck with some little small nation's money. So it's interesting that you say that as the world becomes more decentralized, then the dollar gets stronger. Explain that dynamic. Yes. So if the world gets more decentralized, you're less likely to see the euro take over um, all the countries in Europe, like let's say the Nordic countries, which still have their own currency, the Swedish krona, the Norwegian krona, right? Um, the British pound. We still and the Swiss franc. Okay, so you have Nordic countries, you have UK, you have Switzerland, you have several strong currencies still in Europe, right? You know, and you can throw in uh, more fringe ones like the Polish zloty, right? Which are still relatively deep capital markets from an international perspective. And I say relatively compared to, let's say, emerging markets, right? The, the Polish companies and the British companies are as likely to use Euro as they are likely to use dollars. But the smaller you go in terms of nations, the less likely you are to see them coalesce around a second or third place currency unless it's something that's directly regional and regional based like how we will probably see chinese yuan utilized more regionally in asia right but from the global perspective there the lack of consensus of the second place player makes the dollar last in its first place for a lot longer than it otherwise would have if Europe or China was really making that charge. And that's why I keep bringing up the Euro and the Yuan, because that's what we have in the second place than third place. It's not even clear which one is second because different metrics will, like if we talk about maturity transformation, the Euro market is very advanced in that realm. 
the Euro repo market is a well-developed market. China doesn't have any repo market that's globally based. They don't have a global capital market, right? Western banks don't traffic in yuan-denominated securities and engage in maturity transformation. But is China the nation making the uh, biggest charge in internationalizing its currency? Yes. So you see how the second place isn't even clear and it won't become clear. I, that's my opinion here, is that no matter what China does, you still aren't eclipsing the euro and the dollar in that in that battle. And that's that's the lay of the land as I see it. So you have these challengers, but because it's not clear, the dollar still reigns. So in Latin America, in Africa, Africa is a good place to think about because we've had we have China coming into various African nations, investing, lending, trying to increase the amount of trade between Africa and China, and then Yellen goes and addresses that this is a, a continent that we have to focus on as a nation in the West. So Africa will go to sh Africa will actually be the place where we can play this thesis out. And if you see Africa, Africa going full China, then I'm beginning to be wrong here and you have to assess. If you see Africa resist going full China with the West coming in and the United States specifically saying, hey, increase the dollar trade, and you don't think it's in response to the what China's done over the last decade, it is, it's in direct response because they see the challenger, right? And governments have to play the long game 20 years, 50 years, and they say, hey, we need to come back to Africa because it's a battleground for the global reserve currency, and we can't lose that battle. So that'll be a great place to watch, and at the Bitcoin layer, we will be watching that closely. Yeah, I want to get more into some of that, some of those questions I have. But before we, before we dive into that, I, I, talking about Al, um, Africa, so if we look at... Um, and, and, and maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but some of this kind of going back to where we started about the, the liquidity and the banking system, the financial markets that, that we have, that the dollar has. And so if we look at like the way the Internet um, spun up, it, it spun up really fast in the United States because we already had wired telephones. Um, and it didn't happen in emerging markets yet because they didn't have telephone lines. But then like Africa leapfrogged and went straight to wireless for example, right? And if we look at um, sort of the kind of the same dynamic, we may be already seeing that play out where Africa has already jumped onto digital, digital currencies, kind of leapfrogging past some of this traditional financial payment network stuff. So I'm curious um, if it is, you know, some of this uh, backbone of this US payment system, the dollar payment system is because of the correspondent banking systems and stuff that they have. If going to something like a CBDC or some sort of a digital payment might be a way where we might see them leapfrog past the existing constraints we have and set up a new system uh, much qu quicker and easier. And that type of system would have to get legs. So it's proof of concept right now. And, you know, we talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is part of what is the leapfrog event that we're witnessing right now with mobile phones and digital money. Because the CBDC is not live yet in Nigeria, for example. But it's coming. It's, it's, not, it's not live? So the can, 
I thought that it was in more of a pilot stage right now that it's not being used across the country. So, but you can correct me on that, Mark. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know either. I do know that uh, I've reported a couple times where um, they were trying to use the carrot first to incentivize people to use the eNIRA, and they were giving them discounts on cabs and pedicabs and stuff, and not enough people were moving to it. So now the stick came out, and I think they limited ATM withdrawals to $25 per day. Right. Um, unless they get the eNIRA. Yes. So you're, you're right. And so it, it's been live since uh, late 2021. And it's the, it's the restriction that confused me that, yes, that they're restricting the withdrawals of the money. Yeah. And that's happening in the CBD suite form. I was assuming that that was at the banking level. So yeah. you see Nigeria being one of the places where the adoption of Bitcoin is at its most fierce. And yeah. so, you know, that battle is something that you're witnessing. And yes, CBDCs do help get, uh, you know, the technology going forward. Um, but I don't see it materially affecting, let's say, the dollar being entrenched, because in the end, currencies that do gain traction are the ones that are going to be convertible to dollars, let's say, in the beginning stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I, I guess what I just keep coming back to is uh, necessity being the mother of invention or whatever, right? And I like to say that we only move when the pain is high enough. And so, you know, in the Western world, the United States or Canada or something like that, like, why do we need something like Bitcoin? We don't have high enough pain versus if you're in Turkey or Venezuela watching your currency blow up or in, you know, Afghanistan where nobody can send you money, 
you, you kind of get it. Um, back to the uh, Nigeria, um, I, when I was doing some research on that carrot and stick I was telling you, um, the people were saying, why would we use the E-Naira? It's the exact same thing as the regular Naira. It's just still going to keep losing value. Like, we're not going to use that. What, why would we, right? Um, and so the, the pain is high enough. But going back to that pain, if we have uh, a quarter of the world under U.S. sanctions not being allow allowed to use this payment network, um, and a lot of these are commodity-rich um, countries, you talking about Africa, for example, um, and so when these countries, they can't deal in the dollar network, they got to deal in something else. And so um, maybe in the beginning, it starts off very small, but they have to do something. What do you think they'll go to? I mean, try the yuan and see if that gains steam. I think black market dollars are black market dollars more, more the method that's used in those cases where we see like in Iran, you see black market dollars being you know um a store of value and something that people traffic in so that i think that's more likely bitcoin does fit that role right we think about you know um i think a lot of people still think that gold can fill the role of global money but if gold isn't being already used in these countries that are restricting the use of dollars or where the dollar is sanctioned then you're probably not going to. And I will provide an asterisk there, which is that oil for gold transactions are still happening between nations today. Like Iran and India have been transacting oil for gold in the past decade. Um, I don't know the statistics on it, but that has been a trade that has been on. And so gold is still being used as global money in a small use case. Gold is not really being used as money in a hand-to-hand. -hand. It's more black black market dollars in places that are sanctioned. I don't see Yuan being used as money in the hand-to-hand -hand way in nations where, uh, let's say, non-Asian nations with, that are sanctioned by the United States. And we do see Bitcoin being used in those nations uh, on the ground. And that's very exciting for the prospect of Bitcoin adoption and the prospect of Bitcoin to rise in the face of gold being an old money that works globally, the yuan being a new challenger that's trying to attempt internationalization. Wouldn't you say that Bitcoin is also attempting internationalization? I would say yes. And then you have the euro which is a continent that will be biased to restrict Bitcoin activity because of their more restrictive property rights relative to the United States, where Bitcoin will thrive. So there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts. I don't have any of the answers or even the predictions. I, I just calling it like I see it, which is that the entrenchment of the dollar is too deep, especially in the capital market and maturity transformation side, that that unwind is not ha is not begun, even though other ramp up efforts are happening, including the Bitcoin ramp up, of which you and I both identify as one of the big glimmers of hope in this whole conversation as we discuss the death of the dollar or the 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 non death of the dollar and the internal internationalization of the Chinese currency.
Yeah. I think, you know, the death of the dollar is definitely sensational and it grabs headlines. Um, but as I kind of started at the beginning, um, the dollar took over from the pound, but the pound's still the third ranked currency. It's still there. So it's, it hasn't really died. It just kind of like starts to lose its like relevance a little bit. Um, jumping to Bitcoin for a minute. I mean, you did say in this article um, that Bitcoin did process over $8 trillion in 2022. That's not nothing. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's growing pretty big and that's a, that's a big chunk. Um, yes. yes. And what, yeah, what does it stack up in, in the kind of rank of, uh, of, of trade or globally? I think it's hard to compare that number. So let's say, first of all, that that number um, was debated when I put it out that uh, uh, people said, hey, there's certain. So I took the number from Jameson Lopp, who put out a, a tweet with the statistic analyzing the movement of UTXOs during 2022. Um, I think it was 8.2 trillion that was in the calculation that he posted and others came back and they said, no, it's actually less. So let's call it several trillion. But even then, as we see these trillions transacted on the Bitcoin blockchain, how much of it is due to the just the simple activity of sending money or sending Bitcoin to and from exchanges as traders get in and out of positions? arguably most of it but that use case doesn't it's not apples to apples comparable to let's say gdp or or fedwire right i remember a few years ago the amount of fedwire on an annual basis was somewhere around three quarters of a quadrillion dollars which is about i think it was 760 trillion this is from a few years ago, which would be a hundred times the amount that was calculated for Bitcoin. So honestly, it's not it's not a lot, Mark, but it's such a big it's such a big absolute number that it goes to show you that we have entered the trillions when we're talking about how much is transaction. Now I know that between one and five trillion is transacted in the FX market every single day, every single weekday. So Bitcoin at 8 trillion for the year is also kinda small. Okay. Um, those are some relative numbers for you. Um, but then if we look at, uh, you know, if we look at just the absolute number of 8 trillion, it can go to show you that, hey, this is probably um, the amount that gets transacted in all of FX in in a week, maybe, and that happened on Bitcoin in a year. So it's it's impressive, uh, but it should come with you know some relative markers. Yeah. Now uh, another piece you had said was liquidity. Back to this kind of eight, eight trillion dollar number, you had said liquidity is what makes the reserve currency viable. Um, and so you have to have a big enough market where you can have enough flow go in and out. And so on an $8 trillion a year, which sounds big, but in the scheme of things, it's very small and it's not a big enough, not a liquid enough market to move big amounts of money in and out without swinging it uh, wildly. Is that right? Yeah. And you also have to think about the fact that Bitcoin isn't a cash flowing security and cash flowing securities are at the basis of a lot of uh, banking planning or just asset liability management, which takes place in the trillions. And so 
you can't see, uh, you know, we think about pension funds as one of the biggest buyers of fixed income. And when are they going to come out of uh, fixed income into Bitcoin? And that's going to unleash some flood of capital. But Bitcoin doesn't have cash flow. And so it doesn't fit the eye of the asset liability manager. And it doesn't fit the eye of liability driven investing strategies. Uh, because it doesn't have that nature, doesn't have that characteristic, and you can't plan an actuarial basis. You can't plan on an actuarial basis for something that doesn't have those cash flows or that expected life even, right? Bitcoin yeah. has an infinity expected life. Um, and so you that doesn't fit the models of asset managers. So that's kind of also the, when we're talking about liquidity, um, we have to consider also the characteristics of the asset classes. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Let's go into uh, maybe maybe let's 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 flip it and say what would it look like if it was starting to transition this way. So you said that um, uh, talking about the dollar being the king and uh, having the global liquidity and Bretton Woods and um, seventy nine years developing this this complex network. And you said, "quote This, sam- this simply can't be displaced by just unplugging the USD cartridge and replacing it with the CI- CNY one." So you can't just take this existing plumbing, I think is what you're saying, and pull USD out and then, and then stick, uh, stick China in. It doesn't work that way. Um, but as we kind of talked about with this leapfrog Africa example, um, could you potentially keep this one that just continues to get used less and less and less and then have this alternative network over here that starts to gain steam? Is that possible? And what signs would we be looking at to see if that was actually happening? Yes, and... When we think about the eNIRA, so I just looked it up while we were talking here. Uh, the latest number is 3 million people up from 1 million people um, in, in Nigeria. So you're, you're, you're up to 3 million people that are using the eNIRA now. Um, 
But does the adoption of the e naira take away from the dollar at on the net when we're talking about dollar versus yuan adoption? Right. I'm I'm not sure that I see that link, and it would be it would be a different conversation if we were seeing people in Nigeria adopting the digital renminbi, right? And which might happen, Mark. So that might be part of the internationalization effort of China as it goes to its trading partners and it says, hey, why don't you start transacting in digital currency with us and you can hold it in your wallet and we might even let you earn a yield on it. And that would be that would be a game theory move for China to try to strengthen its position. Um, we we could see that type of aggression, um, and so that's also something that I'll be watching for. Uh, you know, this is again it's a relative game, and if I can't if I can't see the pieces that are there yet, it's hard to speculate on the the you know. Chinese yuan coming in and uh, being able to support financial plumbing around the world, right? Those pieces are just not there. If they're there in the next five years, we can we have to change the conversation. When, when you say those pieces, the financial plumbing, uh, it's not just the ability of the correspondent banks to send money between themselves. That may be the easier part. You're more talking about the the financial markets around it, the debt markets, the bond markets, uh, et cetera. Yeah, like That's when more at, like when when big international asset managers start keeping a significant portion of their assets in Chinese denominated asset markets, like Chinese bond markets, for example. Why why, why do they have to? So what if what if uh, these big allocators said, you know what, we don't trust the FX market. None of these countries are trustworthy, and so we're going to keep our money in commodities. Uh, you, you might, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of Zoltan Pozar's work, where he talks about um, these countries storing their wealth in um, in commodities now. Like that's kind of the trend. And he talks. Uh, there was an article that came out this week. Uh, GM just purchased uh, what five hundred half a billion dollars worth of lithium mine in the United States. And they're talking about how uh, you know they'd rather store their wealth in that commodity than in U.S. Treasuries, right? And so, what if that trend continues, where these big capital allocators like GM or, or Sovereign say, "Well, well, we're not going to put it in any currency. We're not going to hold U.S. Treasuries. We're going to buy the commodity, the lithium mine, uh, the gold um, directly." Um, what about that sort of a trend? That sort of a trend, I think, has been there for a while. And we think about companies that allocate to either their savings or to projects. And if they see the project having a better return pro profile, then they invest. But you know, those projects that they're investing in, they're purchasing in them in dollars and one day they'll sell them in dollars too. So it, it's, just, it's just another asset that they buy on the dollar rail. And commodities also don't have cash flow characteristics that can support the liability driven investment world. So it's a, it's a use it's a it's a potential allocation for certain participants in the market right we call that market segmentation and in certain segments of the market we'll see commodities be more demanded but part of the reason that we wrote this article was to address 
some of the narratives out there from Zoltan Posar and others that were headed more to, uh, you know, maybe a dollar breakup or more of a commodity-based uh, financial system. We we don't necessarily see that uh, unfolding in that way, even though we can point, like you can point to the lithium allocation or other countries making certain moves like Russia and China, you know, in gold-based moves. We see those moves happening. We're not blind to them. Um, but they don't really change our thesis. Yeah, and and, and it's it's great nuance, and, and I pre- it was a great article, and I've shared it, and, and I appreciate it. Um, and 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 one reason why I like it is because uh, there's certainly no doubt of sensational headlines talking about the death of the dollar, um, and people need to understand this is a very nuanced topic. And um, even if this is the case per uh, Zoltan Posar, it again it's not imminent, and it's not it's not an event. It's this is a transition. Um, but but going back to that just a second, so what would it take <laughs> for you to kind of change your mind? Like, what are the things that would have to happen? So, like, China would have to open up uh, capital controls or um, open up their capital markets and establish, like, a trusted, uh, um, you know, bond market? Like, what would have to happen in order to see that uh, where you'd be like, wow, okay, this is starting to gain traction? Yeah, fully internationalized currency that can be held uh, offshore and convertible to currencies around the world. So that would be the number one step. The Chinese currency to become fully convertible and um, you know, a potential allocation for most of the investment world, which is just not yet because of the way that uh, they have a closed capital account. So that would be number one. And then number two would be a globalized Chinese bond market, which they're trying, but it's in its infancy. And then a globalized Chinese repo market for its bonds, especially its sovereign bonds. And its sovereign bonds being uh, auctioned on a regular basis and reaching, let's say, um, the five to $10 trillion worth of supply and that market to be um, followed in a way where, you know how we're all watching the Fed? Why? Because when they move the price of money, all the price of the bonds move too. And so we'll be watching Chinese monetary policy because it just affects that many assets and that many assets are stored. So those would be some of the pieces that I would look for. Okay. And so they're working on the currency piece of it right now, but it doesn't seem like they're doing anything on those other two pieces. So as of right now, there's really not any positive or any big progress being made in that direction I would by say, any of these challengers, by Russia, by the BRICS, or by China. That's right. That's, that's, okay. that's part of the entrenchment there. It doesn't. We can look at the headlines about trade happening in Yuan. That doesn't shift the the plumbing aspect of how the world financial system works okay um well uh good let's 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 uh, let's jump topics for a minute i got a few minutes left with you here um something that you and i have talked about extensively you've written uh, a ton about on the bitcoin layer which is about the fed and what they're doing with rates um I don't know, six, eight months ago, you shared a chart with me showing, uh, I think it was the, the two, the two year yield and the fed funds rate and when it inverted and maybe they'd stop raising at that point, which I think we're there now. Um, 
you know, they they leaked that they had probably only raised 25 basis points, which they did. Um, and on top of that, um, the BLS came out and changed the CPI calculation, which doing nothing else instantly could bring down CPI by a couple of points. Based off of those changes in the system, where do you see the outlook for, you know, rates from here on out? Do you think they'll pause from here? Do you see more rate hikes or what do you see happening from here? Yeah, I think that the disinflation is in and that that will be the trend of 2023. So the trend of 2022 was really hot inflation and an active monetary policy response. The trend in 23 will be the disinflation trend continuing and the Fed allowing its, itself to step back. It means not doing much. And so right now the market has one more hike priced in for 25 basis points uh, in, next month. We still have a lot of data between now and then, but really what we're looking for is this trend that the fear last year, the fear of runaway inflation, that fear has ended. Now we're in a stage in which we are basically trying to assess how quickly do we come back down to uh, long, longer term 2% inflation and that kind of stuff. So I know we talk about changes in the CPI, but really look past the CPI and look to the prices of commodities, the prices of uh, you know food, the prices uh, um, that we're seeing really across the survey components of PMI surveys. So like prices paid in ISM, prices paid in others PMIs around the world. That's it. We have enough inflation data from there to assess what inflation is doing. All of those metrics right now are telling us that the worst of last year's inflation is behind us. The Fed sees that and they don't see the need to keep hiking. Now, they also don't see the need to cut. And I also I also believe that's my base case. That's what I felt for a while that whenever they get to where they are, they'll be biased to keep it there for a lot longer than people think. And um, even if the economy gets weak. And that's really the, the last factor here is that is the economy heading into a very bad recession, a shallow recession, or maybe avoiding a recession altogether? I think it's, I think it's still a little early to call it on that, even though right now what we're seeing is the economy in contraction based off of uh, the PMI surveys. But again, ISM services just came in at 55, which is well in the expansion territory. So right now, it is it is still a little too early to call any recession as well. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, 2020 told the, showed the whole world that the economy does not equal the markets. <laughs> we saw the entire economy shut down, businesses shut down, and yet the market screamed to new all-time highs. And so we see those two are very disconnected. Um, so, you know, 
we'll see what happens with the economy. The data doesn't look super good. A lot of people say uh, that, or uh, history kind of tells us that um, a lot of these changes the Fed has been making maybe don't show themselves in the market and the economy until six, nine months out or longer. So maybe some of these moves have been so fast that we haven't really had time to digest them. And so maybe we'll start to see some of the, the results of those here over the next several months. That's what we're thinking about with when it comes to housing. Housing okay. market has turned over and prices are now going negative month over month. I think we're in, uh, I wish I uh, had the exact number, but I think it's around four or five, six months now of consecutive uh, housing price declines month over month basis. That's based off of the uh, Case-Shiller Home Price Index. It's the main metric that I watch on the housing market. And so those declines have come from the increase in rates that were happening six months before. So they're still raising rates now. So what is that going to have? Uh, what effect is that going to have on housing in three months from now, in six months from now? Housing is 25% of the U.S. economy. What does that do to the greater U.S. economy? So yes, monetary policy operates with a lag, and we don't see what happens fully from rate hikes until several months after the fact. And uh, a, a, it might have been six months ago whenever we had talked in, and uh, you had kind of had the contrarian viewpoint where there's uh, no shortage of uh, headlines out there talking about this big crash that's coming in the markets. You got the Harry Dents and the David Hunters saying there's another 60, 80% drawdown coming. And uh, you were kind of one of the first contrarians to say, I don't know if that's going to happen. I think maybe the Fed could pull off this kind of proverbial soft landing in the markets. Um, would that still be your base case for 2023? Well, let's ignore, let's ignore the soft landing and just talk about the asset price. Yeah. The S&P 500 trades at 4,000. It's significantly above, I believe it's well over 10% off of the lows, and it is still well over 10% off of the highs. So you're in a consolidation range and there's no there's no uh, we, we don't see any well, when the when the stock market unwound in 2022, it bounced and has consolidated. So there has been no crash yet. And I really uh, just always go back to the price and looking at the consolidation right now, I see uh, a stock market that is in decent shape, technically speaking. And that's really the outlook I have for, for the stock market there. I see rates trying to put in a top and stocks trying to put in a bottom. That action has been uh, trying to unfold itself, honestly, since June. But then we had, of course, a, another test of the lows in stocks in the in the fall winter uh, time horizon. Um, but that's kind of the way that I still see it, and I do believe that the stock market um, will respond well to the Fed saying we like the disinflation. And we're going to continue to watch that and, and sit in our position. To a pause. That's right. Yeah. So historically, uh, pauses have been bullish for stocks. Uh, pivots, not so much. Pauses have, have done good. And so um, you're thinking that maybe there's a pause, potentially another 25 basis point hike, and then just kind of like a sit and wait, which would be a pause. Um, and that would probably be... Uh, at least somewhat neutral, if not maybe potentially a little bit bullish for the markets. And Mark, I'll say one last thing on the 10-year yield, 10-year yield trading between 3.5% and 4%, that, 
that's actually kind of fair value for where where what I'm looking at. So I'm usually the treasury bull here, thinking that rates are going lower, uh, but I don't see a lot of move uh, impetus in the market to get tens down to two and a half percent right now with the way that growth is kind of hanging in there even though it's contracting a little bit it's not falling off a cliff and we don't see we don't see some of the biggest red flags and a 10-year yield crashing would be one of those big red flags so i watch yields to tell me right now yield still above three and a half percent say economy is decent enough and um i i try to read the prices to tell me what's going on do you think that some of the Fed's like really fast, swift action might have been to buy themselves some room to maybe come back down a little bit when needed? It's it's part of their uh, it's part of their academia actually, where they say we raise rates so that we can cut them, and right. it sounds hilarious. Um, but if you read their speeches from 2015, 2016 when they were raising rates back then, it, that's what they said. Yeah. We're raising rates so that we can cut them if the economy slows down. So it's part; it's definitely part of it, um, but it's a little simplistic to categorize that as one of the main drivers, but it's definitely there. They need room to cut if things go badly. And so the more they hike, the more they can accommodate when um, things slow down. And when, when better to over hike than when inflation headline is at 9%. So that's what we yeah. saw from them in 2022. So for all of our, uh, let's say, uh, potential home buyers that got in at these 7% rates, do you think there might be a chance at lower rates coming in the, in the future somewhere? Yeah, that people will get to refi lower. Um, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, man, that's, that's good information. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up with that, Nick. Um, I, I get a lot of information out of the newsletter, the Bitcoin layer. I read it all the time. I'm a paid up subscriber. Um, I talk about it a lot on my channel. And if you guys want to get that information, the Bitcoin layer, check it out. We'll link to it down below, um, as well as Nick's other stuff uh, on Twitter, time value of BTC. Um, and check out the book, Layered Money. Um, anything else you want to call out, Nick, or that people should be paying attention to? No, uh, follow along at thebitcoinlayer.com. We're putting out newsletters and videos. So we hope you guys will follow along. Mark, appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot, dude. Yeah. All right, Nick, uh, we'll wrap it up with that. Thanks so much. All right, that's a wrap. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation I had with Nick. Uh, he's a great guest, someone that I use his research of a lot. You should check it out. There's a link down below. I've, as always, let me know what you think. Give me a thumbs up if you liked it. If you don't, you can give me a thumbs down. That's okay, but at least let me know why and hit that subscribe button while you're at it. And that's what I got. To your success, I'm out. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.